Christians, we are weird. We're weirdos. Think about it for a second. We, we could be right now, we could be sipping mimosas, having brunch somewhere beautiful, couldn't we? We could be enjoying, we could be sleeping in. Well, some of you, some of you have kids that will never let you sleep in again, right? But, but some of us could be sleeping in right now, not gathered together. So we could be out enjoying the lake. It's Memorial Day weekend. You know, we could have a long weekend just living it up. But instead, we have decided to gather together in the middle of our weekend, the middle of our Memorial Day weekend, and sing praise songs to someone who died, who lived, died, 2,000 years ago? And this guy that lived and died 2,000 years ago, we claim that he rose again? And then we gather together, and, and sometimes we gather together and we take communion? And, you know, some people think that, that that's drinking his blood and eating his flesh, you know. We won't dive into the whole theology of that, but, but it's weird, isn't it? I mean, just gathering together and singing. I know a lot of people that come to know Christ, and they come to church for the first time in their lives, and they're like, wait a second, what do you guys, you sing? Do you expect me to sing? You're not going to have me get up in front of the stage and sing, right? We're weirdos. And we have been for 2,000 years. This, wasn't, this isn't new. 2,000 years ago, with the early church, they were considered weirdos. In fact, the, the Romans thought that they were actually cannibals. Because when they took communion together, they thought that the Romans thought that they were actually drinking blood and eating human flesh. And so they, thought, they were thought of as cannibals. And that weirdoness has kind of carried on. We're still thought of as weirdos. Why on earth would we take a 2,000-year-old book written by several different people and think that it's true? Why on earth would we take this book and try to apply it to our lives? You know, today is a modern day. We need modern morality. You don't need that morality that was, that was old. That's not for us. And some of us even are so weird about this book that we think the world was created like six to 10,000 years ago, not millions of years ago. That is weird. You guys are a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> it's true. We're weird. But that is all the more reason why we need to live our lives with wisdom. There are so many different misconceptions about what it means to be a Christian. There are so many different misconceptions about what we do and why we do it. That we need to live a life full of wisdom so that we can walk in a way that represents God well. So that the world would look at us and say, you're a bunch of weirdos, but you might be on to something. You're a bunch of weirdos, but, but there's something different about you that I like. If we're going to be able to share the gospel as a bunch of weirdos might want to, we have to walk with wisdom. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we continue our study 
of Colossians. We titled this study By Him and For Him because what we learned first in Colossians, what we learned in the first chapter and, and what will be the major theme, there's several other themes throughout this letter to the church in Colossae, but, but the major theme is that everything hinges on Christ. It is all about Christ's supremacy. That all things in this universe were made by Christ and made for Christ and all things exist in Christ, which means that if Christ for some reason ever ceased to exist, you would also cease to exist. And not just you, but everything in the universe would cease to exist. And not only that, but because this world has fallen, this world has fallen, it's broken because all of us at some point in our lives have rebelled against God. Every single one of us has shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to live my life my way. I know that you created the world. You probably created with moral principles that I could follow. But you know, it would feel really good if I just did things my own way right now. Every single one of us has done that. And because every single one of us has done that, this world is broken and fallen. But because Christ made this world for himself, he is also in the process of redeeming this world. He is making this world new once again. And it began with his resurrection. So he is... First and supreme because he created the world and he created the world for himself, by himself, and all things exist in himself. And he is beginning to renew this world, to recreate this world, and it started with his own resurrection. So he is supreme in everything. And this is what changes us. This is what makes us weirdos, is we recognize Jesus as supreme in our lives. And everything else plays out from there. Well, in the church at Colossae, there was a heresy. It's called the Colossian heresy. And it was a blending of paganism and Judaism. It was a synchronism of these two ideas. And, and the pagan idea is we need to experience God. So we need to have some kind of emotional experience when it comes to God. The Judaism was, we, in order to find this emotional experience of God, we need to like become more righteous. And so they decided that in order to really fully experience God, we need to like turn away from any worldly comfort. Some of them would go so far to be like, we need to wear itchy clothes to make ourselves even more uncomfortable or sleep on hard ground with no pillows. And when I do that, then I can really, truly, fully experience God. And there was this idea that you could become more righteous, you could become more super special spiritual people if you did these things, and then you could have a more, a better experience of God. So Paul is writing to, a, to, to argue against this heresy, and the first step of arguing against this heresy is that Christ is supreme. That our lives all hinge on Christ and His resurrection. And that really all of these things that, that were a part of the Colossian heresy, and we still see some of this today, it's called legalism. Legalism is this idea that you can earn righteousness or earn favor or earn value in God's eyes by doing certain things. And we still see it today. That is the world's operating system. Legalism is the world's operating system. It's this idea that you can be more 
by what you do. That you are valued based on what you do. And so we see it all over the place today. We see it in politics. You're more valuable if you fall in line with whatever your party believes. The other party, they are less valuable. They, are less, they might even be less than human because they don't fall in line with our beliefs, right? We see this with morality. If you don't fall in line with my morals, you might be a Nazi, which is kind of the equivalent of today saying you're less than. We see it play out everywhere because that is the world's operating system. And it had crept into the church at Colossae. So Paul is arguing, first and foremost, in order to fight against this idea that we can be more or less valuable based on what we think or what we do, first is Christ's supremacy. Because the world was made by him and it was made for him and it exists in him and he is recreating and renewing the world in him. And through that, we find that 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 legalism doesn't even help with experiencing God. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That was part of the legalism, right? If you don't do these things, then you can become more valuable. You can have a greater experience with God. And what does Paul say? That they have no value against the flesh. That you can't break free from your flesh. You cannot break free from the world's operating system by trying to conquer it through legalism. That is the flesh conquering the flesh. And it just can't work. So the only thing that we can rely on, the only thing that we can really turn to, is Christ and Christ alone. The supremacy of Christ. And when we put our faith and trust in Christ, He imputes His righteousness to us. He covers us in His righteousness. And that changes it all. That changes who we are. So we don't mind being weirdos. Because we know our value in Christ. And we know that even if the world looks at us as weirdos, God looks at us as his own children. Covered in his righteousness. Now this righteousness does change the way we behave. But we don't change the way we behave to earn that righteousness. It's that God has imputed his righteousness on us. And so then Paul gives us a clothing metaphor. Take off the old behaviors, those old dirty clothes, and put on the new clothing, the new behaviors that are fitting for your righteousness. And then some of the people of the church in Colossae might say, in Rome, there were these things called house codes, and it was basically how your house should operate. And so some of those people in Colossae would say, well, how does this affect the house codes? We've got this new clothing to wear. How does this affect the house codes? And that's what we talked about last week, were the new house clothes. And then he closes the body of the letter. Not, not closes the letter, but the body of the letter, the main arguments of the letter. He closes it with uh, uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 2 through verse 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thankfulness or thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
So he begins this section. So he's just talked through all the house goods, and he begins the very end with continue steadfastly in prayer. This word steadfastly means to be devoted to prayer. Now this isn't just five minutes in the morning or maybe right before bed, but praying without ceasing. It's to always be praying, always be in prayer. And I would argue that we kind of need to rethink the way we pray. If we're going to always be praying, if we're going to be praying without ceasing, we need to rethink how we pray. Oftentimes, we think in order to pray, we need to set the mood, right? That's why most of us like to wake up before our kids get out of bed, because we want this nice, quiet mood, maybe sip on some coffee, read our book, Bible a little bit. So we oftentimes think we need to set the mood, not have any distractions, we need to close our eyes, and we really need to meditate on God. And don't get me wrong, there are times when we need to have these types of prayer. When we, do, when we should meditate on God, and, and we need to set the mood so that we can meditate on God. But, the, but we can't do this and pray without ceasing. Otherwise, all we'd do is have like a mood room where we'd go in there and just spend the whole day in our mood room, and then we'd really be considered weirdos, right? The only way we can pray without ceasing is by constantly praying. And we cannot do that if we only pray when there are no distractions when the mood is right, when our eyes are shut. Life is full of distractions. And there are times when you just have to pray and keep your eyes open. For example, there are times when you are driving and God has laid it on your heart to pray. You need to pray. Please don't close your eyes. Keep those eyes open, right? So we need to keep our eyes open sometimes. We need to be in constant prayer, and that just means constantly communicating with God, praying with Him all the time, not waiting for the mood to be right. Keep your eyes open. Just pray in your head sometimes. He knows your thoughts even better than you do. So think on him, direct your thoughts towards him. Something that helped me when I was younger is a thing called the 60-60 experiment. And what I did with that was uh, we set our, uh, our phones or our watches to beep every hour on the hour. And every time I heard that beep, I prayed. No matter where I was, no matter who I was talking to, I prayed. Now you can only do this if you don't need the mood to be set for your prayer, right? So mid-conversation with someone, I'd hear the beep, and I would begin to pray in my head. Now that prayer might look, it would be drastically different depending on the circumstance. Sometimes that prayer would simply be, dear God, help me to listen to this person. Help me to be focused on what this person is telling me right now. And it might be something even more intense if I was alone and I had more time. But what that did was it helped me just get in the mindset of always be praying. I don't need to wait for the time to be right. I don't need for the mood to be set. I can pray to God no matter what, even with my eyes open. Jen likes to set up what she calls prayer triggers throughout our house. So those are things that will remind her to pray for different people at different times. So she's got these sticky notes that go throughout our house. 
And anytime she sees one of those sticky notes, she prays for somebody. So the point is to be in constant prayer. To always be praying. And one might ask, when we talk about prayer and to always be praying, one might ask, why? Why do we need to pray? Is it that God really doesn't care all that much about us and so he needs us to remind him of him and what's going on in the world? Or is it that we need to wear God down with our requests like some annoying little kid that doesn't understand no? I don't think so. I don't think it's any of that. First, we need to understand that we are in a relationship with God. And part of a relationship is communication. God values you. He calls you his masterpiece. He enjoys your prayer. He enjoys you. Have you ever been in a relationship where there was no communication? Maybe the communication was just one-sided. How long did it last? Was it enjoyable? That person that never talked to you back? You would just sit and chat, 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 they'd never say anything? Probably wasn't that enjoyable. So I would say that this is the first reason why we pray. He created us to be in relationship with him. So our prayer is living out one of the purposes that we were created for. And that is to be in a relationship with our Creator. The second reason I would say is because it is good for us to pray. There is something that happens to our own heart when we pray. As we pray, as we commune with God, we recognize who He is and who we are. And as we recognize who He is and who we are, He changes our hearts. He changes us. Because prayer helps us to realize who he is and who we are. In order to pray, we have to recognize some level of submission and dependency on God. The Christian who does not pray is demonstrating independence from God. Stating that they don't need to be dependent on God. They don't need to submit to God. They can do it on their own. So we are to continue steadfastly or be devoted to prayer. And then he gives us a description of how to pray. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So this idea of being watchful here means to be alert or to be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for things that you are supposed to pray about. Be on the lookout for things that you should be praying about. So we're to be on the lookout, to be alert for what our Christian brothers and sisters need prayer for. This means praying for the persecuted church. I just read about a two-year-old in North Korea who was sentenced to life in prison because her parents had a Bible. We should be praying for the persecuted church. We should be praying for our missionaries. Be on the lookout for how to pray for our missionaries. We have a uh, missionary booklet in the back, in the lobby out there. You can pick one up. It'll help instruct you on how to be praying for our missionaries. We should be praying for other churches in Flagstaff. 
And we should also be praying for one another in this church. And how can we be praying for one another in this church if we don't get to know each other? If all we ever do is come to this building, sing a few songs and listen to a sermon together and then leave, how can you be on the lookout? How can you be alert for what to pray for for one another? So I'd like to challenge you this summer to invite someone over, whether it's just to a park or to your home for dinner, to get to know at least one other person in this church so that you will have a better ability to be watchful in prayer for one another. So we're to be watchful for prayer for one another with thanksgiving. So if remember a few weeks ago with the new clothing section, that section ended with thanksgiving. So thanksgiving is a part of our new clothes. Being thankful is a part of the new clothing that we have on. If you remember also, Paul was in prison while he was writing this. He was a prisoner in chains, and yet he was thankful. He found things to be thankful for. So first we need to note that thankfulness is a choice. So often we think that it comes from an emotion, that thankfulness is developed from emotion and then pours out through the emotion, but I think it's actually the opposite way is that thankfulness is a choice. And the more you choose to be thankful and you look for things to be thankful for and you decide that you will be thankful for other things, then that actually brings the emotion of being thankfulness into your heart. So first and foremost, thankfulness is a choice. It's something you can choose to be. You can choose either to find things to be thankful for or you will become bitter. If you're not choosing to be thankful, you will become bitter. You will find reasons why you shouldn't be thankful. You will look for what you, want, what, what you can be bitter about. So instead of doing that, look for what you can be thankful for, no matter what your circumstances are. Whether they're in prison, whether they're at a bad job, whether your kids woke you up early in the morning, whether you didn't sleep at night, you can still be thankful. Look for those things that you can be thankful for. So this new clothing of thankfulness is one of the major themes of this letter to the Colossians. In this instance in particular, it is tied in with looking for ways we can pray for others. So part of that is showing gratitude toward God for his mercy and his grace as well as for other people. The more I pray for someone, typically the more grateful toward God I am for creating that person. So when you find yourself angry at someone, bitter, do you pray for that person? Now I'm not saying you have to pray a whole long prayer for that person. Maybe it's just simply... God, thank you for so-and-so. I pray for your best for them. One of my mentor pastors used to always say, when he was really mad at somebody, he would just pray for God's best for that person. Because you never know what God's best is for that person. Sometimes God's best is a broken leg. I don't have to pray for all of these exact things. I can simply pray, dear Lord, thank you for so-and-so, and I just pray for your best for that person. 
So the more I pray for someone, typically the more grateful toward God I am for creating that person. At the same time, he goes on to give us uh, a, uh, a specific prayer request for himself. So he continues, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the world to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So the specific word that Paul was speaking, that, that he was requesting prayer that he could speak to other people about was the mystery. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which he was in prison. In the New Testament, mystery simply means something that was previously unknown, but is now known. So it's not like what we typically consider of as a mystery. You know, when we think of a mystery, we think of something that's hidden that only a select few people know. That's not what mystery means in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it simply means something that was previously unknown, but is now known. It's important to know that it's not some mystery that only a full select few know. And in order to know, you must become part of some super special secret spiritual club. That is a Gnostic idea. One of the ideas that Paul is actually writing against. So it's not some super special spiritual secret that only a select few can know, but is a mystery that God did not reveal until the appropriate time. At the appropriate time, he revealed it. And now it is knowledge that everyone can have and is open for all to know. So this mystery was not revealed until the appropriate time. Now it has been revealed. And what is the mystery? That through Christ, Jews and Gentiles are equals. Throughout the Old Testament, God used Israel to reveal himself to the world. That was the purpose of Israel. That is the very reason he created Israel as a nation, was to reveal himself. And through Israel, would, he would send a redeemer himself. Now, through Christ, God is using the church, made up of both Jew and Gentile, to reveal the gospel to the world. Christ is the central figure. So part of this mystery is the gospel, that you who were far off from God, because you were rebellious in your own sin, you, you were separated from God because you, at some point in your life, decided, forget you, God. I want to do things my way. I don't want to do things your way. Even if it's a really minute issue, you, at some point in your life, shook your fist at God and said, forget you. And because of that, you were separated from God. And you followed the world's system of trying to get back to God through legalism. You believed that somehow you could earn God's favor. But Christ, who loved you with such a great love, came and died on the cross in your place. That is the mystery. And it is a mystery to the world, isn't it? In a world where the operating system is you get your value from what you do and how you think, God, coming to this earth, taking on flesh so that you could be redeemed and reconciled back to him. Paying the price for your sin and then lavishing you with his grace, saying you are his masterpiece and your value simply comes because of who he is and who he declares you to be. That is a mystery to the world. It is something that they cannot fathom, something that they cannot understand. 
So that's a mystery. It's a foreign concept that we cannot earn our righteousness. But beyond that, because all who have put their faith in Christ have been made righteous by Christ, then we are all equal in Christ. And this equality is also something the world cannot fathom. Because the world system is based on always being better than someone else. It's always who has more value, who is better, and they're constantly measuring each other up by your words and your thoughts. But Christ has changed it all. I think it's important that we notice that this all centers on Christ. It is faith in Christ. It is the work of Christ. And we are all equal because of Christ. I like the way one commentator puts it. The glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ is the center of Christian commitment. Christ is the centerpiece of the mystery, since he is the key to the Gentiles and Jews, becoming one people in himself. So that is the mystery that was hidden until God revealed it. That through Christ, we could all be equals. That through Christ, we could look at each other and see the image of God in each other. That through Christ, we would all be his masterpiece. And Paul makes this distinction that is part of the gospel when he says, for which I am in prison. And why is he imprisoned? For preaching the gospel. The gospel and God's grace are offensive to those who don't understand it. The idea that God has made everyone righteous, from the missionary to the prostitute, whoever has put their faith and trust in Christ is righteous. That idea is offensive because we like to think that we can earn it. We like to think that we might be better than someone. So it was offensive to the Jews and it was offensive to the Romans. And it was what landed Paul in prison. So that is the mystery for which Paul is in prison. And he's asking them to pray for him, picking up in verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So one idea that we need to take away is that God can use his chains, what we might see as a handicap, to spread the gospel. That very thing that you think is hindering you from sharing the gospel could be the very thing that God can use to spread it. I love this story uh, in the book Jesus Freaks. It's about a boy in Indonesia who had just graduated Bible college. And he felt called to reach uh, Muslim terrorists. But he didn't know how he was going to reach out to them. He didn't know how he was even going to find them, right? And so he's walking down the street and he's praying and he's trying to reach out. And then he hears an explosion and he runs over to this explosion to try to help. And almost immediately he's arrested for acts of terrorism. They accused him of the explosion. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be mad. This is injustice. I'm going to prison for something I didn't do. But instead of being mad about his circumstances, instead of throwing a fit, instead of asking God, how could you do this to me? I only wanted to serve you. He saw an opportunity to witness to his fellow inmates. And because he was charged with terrorism, guess who his fellow inmates were? 
And because they were in prison, he felt safe to share the gospel with them. God gave him the opportunity. God is giving you opportunities as well. Where do you see the opportunity to share the gospel? Where has God placed you? Who can you share the gospel with? What area of your life might feel like a prison, but has a lot of opportunity to connect with people who don't know the grace of God? The other idea in this that I may make it clear to Uh, which is how I ought to speak. The other idea is that Paul wants to speak with clarity. So he knows God will open the doors and will use him wherever he is. He knows it is the Holy Spirit who convicts. It knows that it's the Holy Spirit that changes hearts. But what Paul asks for is that they would pray that he could deliver the gospel with clarity. He recognizes that he has a responsibility to, to deliver the gospel with clarity Now, I don't know about you, I pray this all the time, because some people are eloquent, some people are not, and I, it's really amazing, I get paid to to preach, and I mess up all the time. I am notorious for saying the exact opposite thing of what I really should say. In fact, there was one Easter where I said that Jesus crucified Pilate. Jen will not let me live that one down. A couple times a month, she reminds me of that. I mess things up all the time. I need to be in prayer that God will help me present the gospel with clarity. We should all be praying that God would help us to speak with clarity. This message is the most important message in the world. It is a life-changing, culture-changing, eternal life-changing message. We need to speak it with clarity. Next, Paul continues the theme of evangelism, but he changes toward how we can participate in God's work of redeeming and renewing the world. Picking up in uh, verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward the outsider, making the best use of the time Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So to walk in a wise manner means to conduct oneself in such a way as to be conducive to sharing the gospel. I'll say that again. To walk in a wise manner is to to conduct oneself in such a way as to be conducive to sharing the gospel. So in order to walk in a wise manner, we need to walk in a way that would give us the ability to share the gospel. We're considered weirdos. People automatically hear that you're a Christian and make assumptions about you. They automatically think you're a Christian, here are your beliefs. And oftentimes they're really wrong. So we need to walk in a wise manner so that we can share that gospel. We should be asking ourselves the question, does this action, do these words give me greater opportunity to share the gospel or limit my opportunity to share the gospel? When we are quick to forgive others, when we are quick to ask for forgiveness, when we are unoffendable, these give us the ability to share the gospel. I can't stress enough how important it is to be unoffendable. So often we take up offenses when 
people who don't believe in Jesus act like people who don't believe in Jesus? And we get offended about it. And right away, that offense puts up a barrier for us to share the gospel. We need to be unoffendable. When we let legalism slip slip in, we begin to express the works of the flesh. We begin to think that we're somehow better than other creation, than other people that bear the image of God. We limit our ability to share the gospel. I heard a story about a pastor in a college town who was hosting a Bible study in the college library. And when he walked into the room that he had reserved, there were a bunch of rough-looking guys playing video games. They were, they were if you know the term goth, they were kind of goth-looking, so that meant like they were all dressed in black, had spiky hair, put some black eyeliner on. And they were all playing video games. And he told them, hey guys, I have reserved this room for a Bible study. You're more than welcome to stay and study the Bible with us if you'd like. Uh, but if not, I'm just going to ask you to turn off the video game so that we can focus in on our Bible study here. And one of them looked, got up and he turned around and he looked at me and he said, I'll eat your soul. Now, you and I might be offended by that. I don't know. If I was in that room, I might feel intimidated. I might feel like, man, I've got to really stick up for myself here. I've got to say something that will get him back. This pastor simply said, well, if you do, save some room because I've brought a lot of pizza. It was funny. The people in the room laughed. And every single one of those guys stayed for the pizza and the Bible study. That's walking with wisdom. That's being able to read the room and responding with kindness. That's, that's being able to conduct yourself with outsiders in a way that is conducive to sharing the gospel. My boys are really into skating right now. We went to the skate park the, the other day. And there were these young kids there. They were all very rough looking. They had some pretty coarse uh, language. And they all have these little snap pops that they just kept throwing at us. Now, my instinct was I wanted to take them and, you know, let them know that I was not the guy to be messing with. Well, there was something inside me that said, no, Aaron. Be gentle. So I walked over to him and I said, hey guys, you know, you're at the skate park. None of them had skateboards or anything to skate on. And I was like, you guys are at the skate park, but you're missing something. What do, you, what do you think you're missing? And they're all looking around like, well, we're missing something? I said, you're missing your helmet. I mean, you could fall any second and hit your head. Now, one of them got the joke right off the bat and was like, no, we need skates, man. Another guy was like, I hit my head all the time. It doesn't hurt. I had to fight had to fight sticking up for myself and try to find a way that I could start to make a relationship with these kids. That's living with wisdom. So that's how we need to be living. Not to be offended, not to be quick to go on the defensive, but instead look for ways that we can make connections to share the gospel. He continues on, making the best use of the time. Now, time here is kairos. It means a time that is suitable or advantageous for a specific purpose. I think a better translation is found in the NASB. Making the best use of the opportunity is how the NASB translates it. 
I think the ESV gives us the idea that we cannot waste a minute when it says uh, uh, making the best use of the time. It makes us think that we, have, we just can't waste a minute, that every second we need to be moving and acting. And I don't think that's exactly what Paul is, the idea that Paul is trying to share. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not asking that we should just waste our time. But I think the, the idea that Paul is trying to make is summed up better in the NASB, making the best use of the opportunity. So it's more about not wasting the opportunities that God has given you. Just like God is giving Paul opportunity in prison, God is giving us opportunity to share the gospel in areas of our life. We need to not waste those opportunities. We need to build into those opportunities. Sometimes when I think that I can't waste any minute, I actually lose the opportunity because I think I have to seize every single second and make this second count. So I end up coming off, when I share the gospel in that way, I end up coming off as a used car salesman. Have you ever felt like that when sharing Christ? Like, you've got to sell Jesus to this person, so we've got to make him look really good, and we've got to like, tie him up, put a nice bow on it. And it actually turns people off when I come out like that. But when I'm just looking for opportunities, I kind of reorient myself from I must share now to how can I build a relationship with this person? The best success I have with sharing the gospel is by building relationships with people. By listening to them. By showing them that I care about them. I can't stress listening enough. Listening and asking questions so that people feel valued. Not like you're just trying to score another notch on your Jesus card. So we don't waste opportunities that God has given us for sharing the gospel but we seize every opportunity. And then he continues. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So part of, part of how we make the most of every opportunity is with our speech. This term gracious is grace. It's undeserved favor. It's what God has given us. We did not deserve his favor. We have not earned his favor, yet he gives us his favor. The NASB reads, let your speech be with grace. Meaning your speech should be revealing undeserved favor towards others. Does your speech reveal that towards others? Your speech reveals your heart. Out of your mouth, the heart speaks. So what does your speech say about how you view others? Do you withhold grace? Do you make people earn your favor? Do you make people jump through your hoops? That's the world's system. Making others work for your favor. But God lavishes grace upon us. So do you take the grace God has given you and lavish others with it? One of the ways we can show God's grace is by speaking with grace to others, giving them the benefit of the doubt, favoring them with our speech. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them. That doesn't mean that we have to approve of what they are doing. 
it does mean that even as they are going against God, even as they are rebelling against God, we can still see value in them. Even as they might be out to hurt us, we can speak to them with patience and with gentleness. So living with wisdom, making the most of our time, we would want our speech to build others up, to communicate the gospel in such a way that it is like music to the listener's ears, that others would enjoy listening to what we have to say. Now the term seasoned with salt means to be palatable. Salt was used as a seasoner to bring out the flavor of food. Without salt, the food was bland and boring. When we speak, we shouldn't have to say, take this with a grain of salt. When we give that disclaimer, we're really saying, the words I'm about to speak are kind of harsh, and I need you to make it palatable. We need to put thought into our words so our words are palatable in the first place, so that our words have seasoning. And we do this so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The so that connects the idea of speech that is gracious and seasoned with salt with the ability to answer others. The word phrasing here gives an idea of dialogue with others, meaning that you are having a conversation with others. Our culture has, been, has become really good at yelling other people down, at not listening and actively engaging in a well-thought-out argument. Instead, we have our camp. We learn our camp's arguments, and then we yell our camp's arguments louder than the other camp, and we think we win. It kind of reminds me of high school assemblies. When I was in high school, we'd have assemblies, and we'd all be uh, gathered together by our year you know, you had freshmen over here, sophomores over here, juniors and seniors, and you'd all be gathered together. And then you would develop a class cheer, and you were expected to yell the cheer. And you would yell your class cheer as loud as you possibly could. And then you would think that your class was the better class because you yelled the loudest. But the only reason why you thought you were yelling the loudest is because you were in the middle of the group and you couldn't hear the other ones yell because someone else was yelling into your ear. So there we all were, yelling some made-up cheer that made us feel better about being the class of 98. And that's what our culture is doing right now. With politics, with religion, with morality, with economics. And we all think we're right because we are in the middle of a group yelling. And no one is engaging anyone else. But God has commanded us to be different. Instead of yelling, we're to be gracious with our speech, seasoned with salt, so that we can actually interact with the arguments being made. That means we have to actually listen to the arguments first. And as we do that, we show God's character in the way we talk, so that others can see how Christ has changed us and has freed us from the world system. And he can change them too. The Colossians were to be a church not on the defensive against powerful forces organized against it, but were expected to hold their own in the social settings of the marketplace and to win attention by the attract, 
attractiveness of its life and speech. Through the commencing paragraph with exhortations to pray, Paul is suggesting that the conversation with God should come before and guide speaking with those outside of the church. So the only way our lives, our hearts, and our speech can be gracious, seasoned with salt, is by being in constant prayer with the one who freed us from the world system, freed us from our own sin, and lavished his grace upon us. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. That we can trust it, that we can turn towards it, that we can apply it to every situation in our life. And we pray that as we read your word and that as we engage in prayer, that you would continue to change our heart, that you would grow us in grace, that we would not look like the world and the world's system of legalism, just yelling at others more loudly so that we can win. But we pray that you would help us to be gracious. That our speech would be seasoned with salt that we would represent you well and show to the world that there is a different way. That you have provided your grace to us. You have changed us from the inside out. And we pray that you would help us to seek to be on the watch out for every opportunity. And help us to pray for one another. In your name we pray. Amen.